The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. So wonderful to be with you this morning. And um, today, in, uh, in Pastor Scott's absence, we are going to do something just a little bit uh, not typical from, from, what is, from what is usual here at Abner Creek. We're not going to be looking at one small little passage of Scripture, which is uh, my custom and it is, of course, what Pastor Scott does, walking verse by verse through the Scriptures. Today, we're going to be looking at more of a survey of the life of Abraham. And, of course, uh, during these chapters, we're going to be covering uh, Genesis chapters 11 through 22. Now I know kind of what you're thinking. You know, Greg hasn't preached in a little while and now he's going to unload like 11 chapters on us. But I promise we'll go efficiently through this and, and hopefully it will, it will edify you and it will build up the church here as we look to see, uh, to answer this question. This question is, what does it mean to live a life of faith? What does it mean to live a life of of faith. Now, this time of year is kind of interesting because um, we're coming into the new year. We're only 12 days, 12 or 13 days, I guess. That's the 13th now into the new year. And perhaps many of you have made New Year's resolutions. Uh, perhaps some of those resolutions have, have involved your spiritual life. They've involved something about maybe a renewed dedication to read the Bible through in a year. So I'm sure you're happy because if, if you're still sticking with it, then all of this will be very fresh. The first few chapters of Genesis. Uh, but, but the reality is, before we can endeavor to grow in our faith, we have to ask the question, scripturally, what does it mean to live by faith? We've got to do some, some pretty hard work here, because our culture has, um, has its own definition for faith. Our culture has its own definition of walking by faith or, or living by faith. And I think what they mean, what, what the culture means, is kind of this, maybe this Hallmark Christmas movie idea of there's something out there that you really, really want, and if you just hang on long enough, it'll come through. If you just hold out hope, if you just have faith, then it'll, for some reason, come true. That's a little bit distinct. That's a little bit different from, I think, what the biblical picture is of faith. And, uh, and so we're going to be looking to the life of Abram or Abraham. Of course, during the middle of this, God changes his name. So when I say Abram or Abraham, just understand I'm using those to mean the same person, the same, uh, um, I'm using those interchangeably. But here's, here's a little working definition for us. What does it mean to live a life of faith? And I've entitled this sermon this, Living Under the King's Reign. Living Under the King's Reign. That, I think, is, is perhaps in a sentence what it means to live by faith. I think it, we can break that down into two things, okay? One thing would be, one part of that definition would be living as though God actually exists, you know that it's possible even for believers to make life decisions every day to live in such a way as if God doesn't even exist. And I would ask you to examine, examine like the last month of your life or examine the last year of your life. The, the first few weeks of January are always good for reflection, looking back on the previous year, looking ahead to the year to come. Would it be possible for you to make all of the decisions that you've made in the last year would it be possible for you to make those decisions the way that you've made them and it be perfectly acceptable if there were no God? Would it all have still worked out if God did not exist? 
I love how the the Christian Standard Bible translates Psalm chapter 10 verse 4. It says this, in all his scheming, the wicked person arrogantly thinks there is no accountability since there is no God. We also know how the scriptures say that the fool says in in his heart, there is no God. And we have to be very honest with ourselves. It's possible, even while we are saying out of our mouths, I believe in God, I believe A, B, C, and D about him to still live as if that is not true. It's called confessional Christianity. We confess our Christianity with our mouth, but functionally we function as if we are atheists. We function in a way that would be perfectly acceptable if he did not exist. So that's the first part of that definition. Living under the king's reign, living a life of faith means living as if God is actually real. And secondly, it would mean, taking it a step further, living as though God is who he says he is. You know what, what I've been actually trying to do the last year, I'm about halfway through, um, through reading the Quran just because I think it's important to, to read, to be aware of things. I'm clearly not reading as a devotion, okay, before you guys run me off the stage. Um, what, what I've been doing, though, is reading through that book just to kind of see, you know, what, what is it, what, what does the actual original source have to say? Because there's a lot of stuff out there about what, um, what the Islamic faith teaches. So I'm about halfway through, and one of the things that I've been absolutely struck by is how different and insufficient and unhopeful and unlife-giving this book is and how, in contrast, how rich and how deep and how equipping and how life-giving the scriptures are, the Bible is. The reality is that God has revealed his character to us. He hasn't just said, live as if there is a God who will judge you. God has said, live as if I am who I say I am and the character attributes that I have revealed are actually true and they will actually inform the things that you do with your life. It makes it much more specific. He has told us about who he is. So I want to take a few moments in Abraham's life, in Abram's life, to draw out a few points. The first one, I'm just going to read. Some of these will be on the screen, perhaps. Uh, the rest of it, you can follow along if you like, but I'm going to do most of the reading for you. You can either just kind of listen or you can follow along. I'm going to encourage you to do either one. The first one, the first moment that I would like to, to look at is in partly in Genesis 11, partly in Genesis 12. And here's the lesson. For each little moment, I have a lesson that I think we, sh- we can draw from it. The first lesson is this, God will fulfill his saving purposes. You remember back in Genesis chapter 3, as soon as the fall occurs, as soon as sin enters the world, in Genesis 3.15, there's this first gospel, this, this verse that says, that gives a prophecy about how God will save his people, about how he will crush the head of sin. And here is the one of the next installments of this promise that God has given that he will fulfill his saving purposes. Just want to read a little bit about a kind of a dark moment here in, in chapter 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, uh, and of course in, the, in, in Genesis it seems like every time something happens to the east, there's like this overtone of evil, right? As the fall happens and God sends the people 
east of Eden, and then uh, Lot travels toward the east away from Abram right before the, the, all the stuff with Sodom and Gomorrah happened. So anyway, it's just interesting. As the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us uh, make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So think about what the people are doing. They're, they're thinking, let us enshrine our greatness here with some big building. Let's build upward to the heavens. And then the very next verse, and the Lord came down to see the city. Do you, do you catch all the, this little stuff that's in the narrative? It's just re, if you just start to read between the lines what's happening, the people are about to display their greatness and they're building the tallest tower that they can possibly engineer and put brick and mortar to and put hand to stone and build upward. And the Lord came down to look at what they were doing. There's this idea that the Lord is Lord over what's happening here and it is not taking him by surprise and he's about to answer against it. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built and the Lord said, behold, they are one people, they have one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. He's speaking, of course, in negative terms and he, he confuses the languages so that so that a fence would be put around the sin that they have the ability to perform together. He disperses the people. He, he confuses the language, the languages, and kind of puts a stop to what they are doing. And then immediately, after this dark moment in the first few chapters of Genesis, look what happens in verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arkpashad, two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered him 500 years and had other sons and daughters. And he goes down through this genealogy, which is kind of the part in our daily Bible reading plan that we tend to check out if we're not careful. But then down in verse 26, he said this. It says this. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram. And then immediately it goes in to the life of Abram. One of the things that's really interesting when you're reading through narrative, when you're reading through much of the Old Testament, is when the Bible starts to slow down, you better start to pay attention. It starts going through, this person lived 30 years, this person lived 403 years, this person lived so many years, and it's, it's just going through generations, and it's skipping over stuff, and then boom, Abram. And you spend verses, uh, chapters 12 through 22 talking about one man. When the story starts to slow down, God is zeroing in on some things that he wants us to pay close and intimate attention to. But the message of this point is this. Even when the darkness of human sin has seemed to take hold of humanity, God is still moving on his, on his salvation purposes. He's still causing the generations to flourish all the way down to Abram, the person that he has chosen for the line of his saving purposes to come through and ultimately Jesus Christ himself. It's very, very important. It's not because the people are doing something right that God decides to, to go forward with his saving purposes. It's because God has made a promise and God is jealous 
for his own glory. Verse, uh, chapter 12, verse one through three, it says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and to him who dishonors you, I will curse and in all the families of the earth will be blessed. In other words, God's purposes are not simply for this family. God's purposes are universal that through this family, God's glory might spread to all the families of the earth, to all the nations. His saving purposes will be accomplished. He will fulfill them. Here's moment number two. Moment number two is in Genesis 12. And the point that that I would like to uh, impress upon you is this. God is patient with human weakness. God is patient with human weakness. If you came here this morning to church and you have felt quite weak, well, I I have one thing to say to you, and that's you're, you're in the exact right place. Because God pushes his purposes forward through human weakness and through human inability. And your weakness is not a barrier to his accomplishing what he is going to do in this world and through your life. And that's what we see here in Genesis 12. Um, I'll read verses one through three again. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And you skip down to verse four, it says this. So Abraham or Abram went. Simple obedience. This is a perfect example of, of living a life by faith. Abraham went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And then down at the the bottom of this little paragraph, verse eight, it says this. uh, And there, uh, from there he moved to the hill country of the east of Bethel and pitched his tent and Bethel, uh, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. What a beautiful way to end a little story about Abram. And if you were looking for just an example to follow, sometimes that's kind of how we treat characters in the Bible is let's just look at them and kind of do what they did. They're just good examples to follow. And if we can just follow their example, we'll be okay. And it would be a great place for the chapter to end and maybe even the story of Abram to end uh, for a little while anyway. You know, it starts starts with God making a promise. It ends with a prayer. It's nice and tidy. But then, then a problem occurs. Look at verse 10. Chapter 12, verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. In other words, a change of circumstances. Yeah, hey, God called me. He told me to leave and go, and I was 75 years old, but I did it anyway, and I left, and and things were going peachy. I built an altar. I, I called on the name of the Lord. Everything was great, but then there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. And when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So say that you're my sister. In other words, a change of circumstances has called Abram to fear. And fear has called Abram to divert from trusting God. It has caused him to sin. And many of you know the story. I can't, because of time, I can't read it all. God saves Abram from many of the consequences of his sin, although it's not very ideal when you let another guy take your wife as his wife. But God 
holds back many of the consequences of Abram's sin, and then immediately, God reaffirms his promise to Abram. It turns out that sometimes it's easy to trust God with the crazy, stupid obedience, people won't ever understand, but I'm going to do it anyway. It's easy to trust God with that, but then not to trust him with the details. I wonder if you can put, a, put your finger on a, on a time when a change of circumstances that has unfolded in your life has caused you to, to kind of take the plane off of autopilot and try to handle things yourself, to take your trust off of God and his purposes and to handle the situation. Can you think of a time in your life when a change of circumstances has caused you not merely to doubt something about yourself, but to doubt something about God? His goodness. You know, suffering, suffering seems to do certain things in some people's lives and certain things in other people's lives. I was talking to a brother recently who's, if, if I could lay out the situation for you, some of you might be brought to tears. Just the unbearable kinds of things that, that this brother has had to walk through the last few years. And he told me this. He said, you know, Greg, and he had heard this somewhere else, but I, I think it's important. He said, sometimes the sovereignty of God is a hard pillar to, to rest on. You know, but it's still good knowing that God is who he says he is. Don't understand the means, all the mess we have to go through right now, but God is still who he says he is. How does God respond to this situation with Abram? Verse 17, the Lord afflicted Pharaoh his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife, and he caused the truth to come out and the situation to be, in a sense, resolved. It's not because Abram did some kind of great obedience. It's because God is jealous for his own purposes advancing and nothing can get in the way of them. So let me encourage you to, to see this about God, that you are not strong enough to mess up what he has purposed to do in history. And you are not strong enough to mess up what he has purposed to do in your life. So rest your head on the sovereignty of God. Rest your head on the pillow of the sovereignty of God. He is patient with human weakness. Just because Abram messed up does not mean that God withdrew his purposes for salvation. Psalm 103 reminds us that God knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. He knows what we're made of and he knows what you're made of. I'm not saying that, that you have permission to, to go around and, and just live whatever feels right, live by the flesh and then expect God to clean up the mess after you. But what I am saying is that when you do mess up, which you will, it's not gonna frustrate God's plans. Here's moment number three. Is it Genesis chapter 15 and 16? Genesis 15 and 16. And here's the lesson. The lesson that we learn from Genesis 15 and 16 as we continue to watch the saga of Abram's life unfold. The lesson is this. God makes one-way covenants. God makes one-way covenants. And by the way, it's good that he does. 
it's good that he does. I'll explain that in a moment. But God makes one-way covenants. Read with me Genesis 15. um, Let's start in verse 5. And he brought him outside. God brought Abram outside. Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. We've heard this before. God is reminding Abram. He's being patient with him. He's reminding him of the promise that he has made before. He's saying, hey, it still stands. It still stands. And, and Abram believed the Lord and he counted it and God counted it to him as righteousness. Not a work that Abram did, but, but trusting God, having faith in him. Verse 15 says this, as for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. I'm sorry, I should be in verse 12. And as the sun was going down, Genesis 15, 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Okay, so whatever God is getting ready to do, it's getting ready to happen while Abram is unable to take part in it. A deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful great darkness fell on him. And the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions." And then in verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch as God revealed himself through this way, okay? This this fire pot and flaming torch passed between the pieces. So what God had done, they had brought a sacrifice, they had split the sacrifice, so there's like this little pathway in between the sacrifice and this ritual. This is how covenants in the ancient Near East, long time ago, this is how covenants were made, okay? They would do a sacrifice, and it says this. It says the flaming, uh, or the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch passed between the pieces. You see, typically, when a covenant was being made, both both parties would pass through, but this time, Only God passes through the sacrifice. The point is this. God is making the covenant. It doesn't matter what Abram does. God is making the covenant and he will enforce the covenant and he will hold it up by the strength of his character and who he is. God makes one-way covenants. So there's a wrong way to take this kind of doctrine. The wrong way would be this, to assume that since God has promised to bring his promises to pass, there's no responsibility on us. There's no need to pursue Christ-likeness. There's no need to tell others about Jesus. No need to evangelize. No need to do much of anything at all. But of course, Romans chapter 6 warns against this severely. And all through the scriptures, there are these two parallel beliefs of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. We are still responsible for the things that God has called us to do. That would be the wrong way to to interpret this, but the right way would be this, that because God has promised the ends, then the means that we have to go through in the middle are bearable because God is still with us. Because God has determined what will happen and he has actually directed the steps that we will take, we make our plans, but the Lord directs our steps the uncertainty and all of the the crises of faith that we will go through while following him, the surety of God's plan encourages us to keep plowing, to keep planting, to keep watering, and to keep trusting because God will not go back on his word and his promises. That is the comfort that can be found in the sovereignty of God and in reflecting on the reality that God makes one-way 
covenants. Further, consider this. Understanding this thing about God making one-way covenants, one-way promises, okay, a covenant is like a promise between people. It keeps us in a humble frame of mind. Since God is the reason that the covenant exists, there's no room for praising us. There is only room for praising him because he's the one who's in charge. When someone comes to faith, it's all because of God. When a believer repents, it's all because of God. When you get that job that you've been praying for because it will provide for your family, it's not because you took your resume to the right person who cleaned it up and and you just held your mouth right and said the right things at the right time in the interview. It's because God is in the driver's seat of history and he intends to bless you. All good and perfect gifts come from him. Right on schedule though. Right on schedule. And it's a good thing that God makes one-way covenants because if it were a two-way covenant, it would be void in about minute number two because of our disobedience. Right on schedule, after meeting with God and experiencing this incredible movement of God's saving purposes, Abram immediately does what? He goes to try to fix God's problem himself. Look in in chapter 16. Genesis 16, one through four. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant so so it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to, to Abram as her husband, her husband as a wife. And he went into her and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. So Abram sins thinking that he can advance God's purposes. This is how irrational sin makes us. Sin makes us so irrational that we can get to a place where we believe that by doing something sinful, God could be honored and his purposes can be advanced. Sin makes us so irrational that we not only lose trust in him, that hey, I know he promised me and he, and he met me in ways that that are really kind of atypical here, right? We had this covenant, you know, I kind of fell asleep. God did this thing. He went through the covenant by himself. He met me. There's another scene that's about to come up where God reveals, he appears to Abram and it's crazy. God's doing all this stuff. Not only have I doubted him, but I have actually gotten to the place in my mind where I believe that a holy God can be pleased by unholy means. And how does God reply? God replies to Abram with overwhelming grace and a reaffirmation of his promise to Abram. So here's what I would encourage you to, the application from this little scene. If you want to see your faith in God increase, if you want to trust his character more, meditate on who the scriptures say that he is more than you meditate on the circumstances that might make you doubt him. Meditate on who he is. Meditate on how the scriptures have revealed him to be so that you can get a vision, you can get a picture of the grandeur of his glory and then out of that awe, out of that amazement that the scriptures can can mediate to you out of that, act. 
live out the reality seen there. Here's moment number four. Moment number four. It's in Genesis chapter 18. Genesis 18. We're going to read the first couple of verses and then skip down to verse number nine. But here's the lesson that we learn from this moment number four. And that is that lacking faith equals a distrust, distrust of God's character. A lack of faith equals a distrust of God's character. Genesis 18, one through two says this. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. And he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, three men were standing in front of him. So we don't understand all of what's going on here, but here's what we know. That God appeared to Abram in in some kind of way in the form of these three men, okay, to to talk to him. And, And here's what the scriptures say. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed down himself to the earth. And, and he begins talking and they talk back. And this is what it says down in verse nine. And they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife shall have a son. Now, Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself. I mean, God is outside the tent door telling them what will happen, and she has the audacity to laugh, as it were, in God's face. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Sarah's not only doubting her own ability to carry a child, she's doubting God's ability to overcome whatever kinds of circumstances exist that might prevent that. She's not doubting herself. She's doubting the very character and nature of God. And that's what a lack of faith causes us to do. Here, at this point, we need to to depart a little bit from our culture. As mentioned earlier, our our culture speaks of faith as, as as if it is simply just holding out for something that you want to happen. If, but if this is your conception of faith, it may be that you are still looking to yourself as the center of the story instead of God. Now, I believe God desires to fill many of your desires, but God doesn't exist just to give you everything that you might want. Instead, what God wants to do is something just a little bit different. God wants to give you new desires and then fulfill those. God wants to give you desires that are deeper and more fulfilling than the things that you have in your own flesh. God desires to give you a new nature, new desires, new wants, and then fill them so that you glorify him. That's what God desires to do. This might be why you're so frustrated with God for not coming through for you. God may be not coming through for you on something that he doesn't even desire to do in your life. And not that he, does, that he wants less for you. He, he most certainly wants what is best for you, but he gets to determine what that is. 
God gets to determine what is best for you. I'll I'll read you a quote from C.S. Lewis. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires too strong. Not, Not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Perhaps it is that God is not coming through for you because God actually wants to come through for you on something much better than what you have imagined, something much more meaningful. God desires to give you new desires and then to fulfill those. Here's the conclusion. I want to to do a little bit of New Testament work here. In Romans chapter 1. So far, I've been speaking broadly about living under the king's reign. I've been speaking to those of you in the room who who have believed in this king and you've trusted in this king and you've given your life to this king and each day you're striving to live for this king. But I can't presume anything here. I, I have to know that in a room this size, there are some perhaps who have never entered a relationship with, with this king. You remember what the Bible said of Abram in Genesis 15, 6? We read it a few moments ago. It says this, Abram believed God and God credited that to him as righteousness. We know that in Romans, in a very memorable passage, I just want to read these two verses from Romans 1, 16 and 17. Romans 1, 16 and 17 says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And many people have said, okay, people that I'm a lot smarter than me, but I trust them, they have said that perhaps this little phrase could could better be rendered, the righteous by faith shall live. Faith is the means that they may have life. The righteous by faith shall live. So why is righteousness and faith so important? The reason that righteousness, which is just another word for, for perfection perhaps or, or moral purity or, or holiness, right? Righteousness is so important because the Bible says that God dwells in unapproachable light. We have no business being anywhere near him because he is completely separate and other from us. He is holy. He is perfect. We are not. He is transcendent. We are finite. He is good. We are sinful. We have no business being anywhere near him. And of course, it says in Matthew chapter 5, I want to read these words to you. Let them strike you perhaps in a way that they haven't struck you in a while. Matthew 5 verse 17. Do not think, these are the words of Jesus, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. Let's talk about the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, and all the rest of them. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass away from the law. In other words, all of the requirements that God has for us are still in place. Now, who in the room can raise their hand and say that you can fulfill all of God's requirements? Not me. Not you. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness, my righteousness, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the people who as their full-time job sought to follow the law and sought to follow God, Jesus says, unless you are more righteous than them, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The reality is this, God only accepts perfect people into heaven. Does anybody see a problem with that? It's because there are no perfect people. So how are we going to get this Matthew 5 type of righteousness? If it says, you can't enter heaven, you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes. Where do we get this kind of righteousness from? I want to ask you to glance at Genesis chapter 22 as we look at our final moment. After these things, God tested Abraham and, Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here am I, he said. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, he lifted up his eyes and saw the place, the mountain, from afar. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over and worship and come back to you. We'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid the wood on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father, here I am your son. Behold the fire and the wood. Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And so they went both of them together. When they came to the place which God had told them, Abraham built the altar and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid Isaac on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abram reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called out from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him for now I know that you fear God. Verse 13, Abraham lifted up his eyes. I can't help but think that there were tears in them. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. How can you get righteousness that you need? It has to come from someone else. 
It has to come from someone who lived the perfect life that you did not live and who died the death that you deserved as your substitute. Just just as Abram was willing to lay the tree on the back of his son and make his son carry it up the mountain, so God was willing to lay the tree on the back of his son Jesus and make him carry it up the mountain to die for you. Just as God provided a ram for a substitute so that Isaac would not have to die, so God has provided a substitute for you so that you do not have to bear the consequences of your sin. And that substitute is God himself, Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life that you couldn't live, who died the death that you deserve. And we have this promise in the scriptures that the righteous by faith shall live. Listen to this verse in 2 Corinthians 5, and I will close. For our sake, he made him, God made Jesus, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, even though Jesus knew no sin, so that in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Everybody in here walked into this room with a righteousness problem. And that problem is that you don't have it yourself. Some of you walked into the room having that righteousness problem taken care of because Jesus has given you his righteousness and Jesus has taken your sin. Some of you walked into the room, perhaps, with the righteousness problem not fixed. There is a fixer. His name is Jesus. And he offers to you the goodness that he earned. And he offers to take away your sin. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the story of Abram. We thank you for how he is not merely a good example to follow, although there are some things that that we should probably imitate. The story of Abram is meant to point us to Jesus. We're meant to look at Abram and and see ourselves. We're meant to see that we're the ones that God has done so much for, yet we are still doubtful. We are still weak. We are still frail. But God is still, you're still good to us. We're meant to look to see how just as, as Isaac needed a substitute, you have given us a substitute in Jesus Christ so that our righteousness problem can be fixed. None of us, Lord, none of us can, can be more righteous than the Pharisees and the scribes. None of us can do that. But Jesus did. And he offers, he offers his life to be credited to our account so that when you look down on us, you don't see all of our sin. You see all of Jesus' perfection. Lord, I pray, I've got to know that there's someone in this room who walked into the room with their righteousness problem not fixed. But today it can be. Lord, I pray that person would come, would respond to to your gospel. They would see you as beautiful and turn and and repent and and say, there's no way I can do it. Jesus has to do it for me. I pray that would happen. In the name of Jesus, amen. Over the next couple of moments, you'll have an opportunity to reflect.
on the songs we sang earlier that preach the gospel, on the, on the scriptures that we read and on the things that, that I have said trying to make this, this story clear. This stage is kind of a venue for you perhaps if, if you're comfortable doing that, if, if you would like to come down and pray to the Lord, if you'd like to pray in your seat. And if you'd like to come talk to me about the things that I have just shared, if you want to come down here and say to me, Greg, I walked into the room today like everybody else with a righteousness problem, but I walked in today with mine not fixed. I'm still bearing all the consequences of my sin. I need to give all those over to Jesus and I need to to trust him and to live for him. Let me tell you that there would be nothing, that, that would make my year if you'd walk down and tell me that. So I'm gonna be here available. There's gonna be a few moments of reflection and then there's gonna be a time of response. Whatever response looks like for you, I just encourage you, obey God, obey God. Thank you. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.